Welcome to the HR Chat Podcast, bringing the best of the HR and talent communities to you. Welcome to another episode of the HR Chat Show. I'm your host today, Bill Bannum, and my guest this time is Perry Timms, founder of People and Transformational HR Limited. Perry is also the author of the book, Transformational HR. He has been listed as one of the most influential HR execs by world-renowned organizations and is passionate about changing the world of work. Perry is also a global TEDx speaker and advisor on the future of work and HR. This podcast is supported by Fidelo Inc., a consulting firm specializing in improving human performance. Through their products and services, Fidelo helps clients design, develop, and implement strategic integrated human resource processes and systems. Learn more at fidelo.com. That's F-I-D-E-L-L-O.com. Perry, it's my pleasure to welcome you to the HR Chat Show today. And an absolute pleasure to be here, Bill. So thanks for asking me. Let's start by you taking a minute to, to introduce yourself to our listeners. Thanks, Bill. So, um, yeah, how would I describe myself? Well, I am a bit of an eternal optimist. Uh, I get very excitable about possibilities. Um, and I guess, what do I stand for? I stand for the concept, really, that we've all got to have a really good shot at life. Uh, and there are some people who have the opportunity to help others um, uh, in, in the circumstances where perhaps they've got some adversity or some disadvantage. Uh, so yeah, I guess there's something about generosity that I guess I stand for too. So yeah, uh, I just happen to be an HR professional um, and that's the way I guess I sort of manifest some of that. Now then, in, in your book, Transformational HR, you, you talk about the, the hope for and hype of our ever-changing world. So my question for you is, what is hype and what is hope when it comes to HR in general? Uh, yeah, that's a really nice way to start, actually, because I think when I, I crafted that sort of tone in the book, I wanted to give people the sense that we should be excitable about the possibilities of a more equalised and opportunity laden world. But but with it comes a lot of hype. And so for, for HR, I think the hype um, is that they are, are uh, um, uh, able to frame a different kind of working proposition for everybody, because I think there's that aspiration, I think, in lots of people I work with. And it's really difficult to change a system that's been ingrained for decades, if not hundreds of years. Um, so the hope and the hype is the scale, I think, of how much we can influence that and create um, better workplaces and good work uh, concepts that bring people to life. Um, I, I guess the other hype really is um, the technology side. Um, how much technology will take away some of the grind of work and give us a chance to be much more in tune with creative and humanly ways. Um, lots of that, I think, is probably overestimated. Uh, and I still think we're waiting for robots to take our jobs uh, when in actuality, I think we're going to be around doing the work we're doing for a long time. That's good to hear. I, I do I do fear the robots a little bit too much, perhaps, um, as, as do maybe uh, many of our listeners. Uh, so it's always nice to hear that there are pe- there's a place for people. Um, OK, yeah. what about what about recruiting then, Perry? Uh, what, what is hype and what is hope when it comes to recruiting? 
Um, so I think the hype I'm seeing in recruiting is where we're seeing a concept called purpose washing coming through. And by that, what I mean is organisations that have some pretty mundane routine jobs are trying to connect people to a higher sense of purpose, which I think is a bit conflated. So I think we're kind of overselling sometimes the nature of an organisation being warm, inviting, compassionate and generous when actually really it's just all about profit stacking. So I think there's some high going on there now the hope though is what i'm seeing in organizations appreciating and understanding that people are looking for organizations that aren't just economically sustainable but they do good they do good for other people communities uh, and the places that they operate in and so take environmental considerations seriously so that's that's the hopeful bit is i think people are getting the message that people are drawn to more than just a job they're drawn to an organization that stands for something that's bigger than themselves and better in the way it conducts business. So, um, yeah, a bit of hype about purpose washing. But the hope is they're getting some messaging right uh, about the expectation of an organization. Now, you've, mm. you've spoken you've spoken a lot about HR being underskilled and underprepared to interpret and use the data available to them to find and retain top talent. And uh, if, if they don't have those skills now, they might be in a little bit of trouble. Where, where are we now? Big question for you. Where, where are we now? In, in terms of what, what's the state of the HR nation when it comes to ensuring that biases are removed from hiring and, and management processes? Yeah. Yeah, I'm aware of a number of different moves in this particular market, Bill. So both um, suppliers who are creating technology that can help us make choices that remove biases. And and there are some applications that can help us with the language that we project outwardly on advertising, um, because I think there's some work done by the number 10 nudge unit in, in the UK's government who did some research about bias within job adverts and found an incredible correlation uh, between people of ethnic minorities who were dissuaded by certain terminology in a job advertising uh, campaign. So I think we're getting cleverer, actually, at how to position these things so that we know they are open, inviting, transparent um, and and are emitting the right um, approaches. So, yes, I'm seeing the technology world help us with some of that machine learning and so on. Um, When it comes to the underskilled and underprepared aspect you talked about with interpreting and using data, I would say that about five years ago, people going, yes, of course, we need to be good at data analytics. And there was quite a lot of rhetoric. And and behind it, people were going, but I don't really know how to do that. And so I'm going to, you know, just describe an initial intent to do so. What I see now, and I've seen it inside clients, that intent has gone into application and deployment. It's still in its infancy. So I don't see the sophisticated nature of data analytics that I would perhaps like to see. So we're still a long way from being excellent in that space compared to how companies are around customers, as an example. But we've gone beyond high level intent to a lot more application. So I'm seeing people who are very analyst and and, and I guess you'd say management information, business information, human intelligence oriented um, so that they can look at campaigns, drop out rates. They can look at um, demographic makeup uh, and they can get insight into where people drop off a process and why and make adjustments. Um, uh, And so I think we're getting much more into that side of the data equation. But I think we're also getting very clued up 
about what questions we ask that we want data to give us the answers to. So some clients of mine have demonstrated some of that. And I'm, I'm really starting to see that shift now. Not quite that we're becoming super analysts, but we're more than advanced than we were when I first wrote this book. So I think the signs are encouraging. Um, uh, and I guess as a profession, we probably need to amplify and share that a bit more so that we can raise the whole level of capability, not just at an organisational level. But I think we're on the right path. I mean, obviously, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of information around there about um, folk with data analyst uh, backgrounds, for example, becoming CHROs. Perry, um, yeah. Are you, are you saying then in your previous answer that HR professionals are, are, are learning these skills, are, are getting to grips yeah. with with man managing data, as opposed to um, external folk coming in with, with non-HR backgrounds, with data-focused backgrounds and, and taking over those roles? Yeah, I'm seeing almost like a little bit of a sort of hybrid type role where people are recruiting for a data analyst, but they want them to be able to understand the sort of dynamics of an HR function. So it's accountability and it's span of control and it's, um, I suppose, breadth on, on the issues that occupy us inside an organisation about the psychology of teams, you know, leadership and, and the impacts of that. Um, so I think that's where we're starting to get traction. We recognise the expertise is needed and we're starting to craft and build that in to roles and in the book i talk very deliberately about hr business partners being a key intelligent source now i've been working with some hr business partners in different organizations and they absolutely get that and that intelligent source isn't just numbers crunched through some form of algorithmic interpretation but they're also taking intelligence as in the vibe the climate, the essence, the narrative, the stories that represent things they know are problems to solve, and they're bringing them back into the rest of the HR team, going, we've got a potential tipping point problem here with, and they're describing where they're basing that on in intelligence, and then they're using that to form into problem statements, um, solutions, uh, test experiments, and then deployment. Now, that's more advanced than it was when I first wrote this book. So I'm really pleased to see that. It's still not everywhere, but I'm seeing it. And that's where I'm getting encouraged by it. Well, listeners, I think I've just uh, found the the title of the follow-up interview that I'd love to do with Perry. Um, how to quantify the vibe of a company's culture. Um, but we're not going to talk about that anymore today. Instead, instead, I, I'd like to talk a little bit about um customer experience with you now and and treating the employee mm. journey more more like the customer experience it, it, it's mm. hard to build all of the data points that hr needs to track all we need to know about candidates and and employees what, what can mm. hr learn from from the information that companies can gather from customers and mm. how can we apply customer-centric data powered attraction lessons to to the world mm. of work Mm. So again, it starts with the intent. So I think the intent has to be what can we learn about our interactions with other people who are consuming our services and goods and apply that to people who are here to, to provide them um, and to give us the fighting chance of success. So yeah, I, I'm liking the fact that employee lifecycle stuff now is really at the top of everybody's kind of strategic agenda within HR. So we've kind of recognised the codification, if you want, of the stages of maturity and need 
mood and stimulus in people. And I've spent a lot of time looking at this because whenever I go in and, I, and I'm asked by a client to help them solve a problem, it's normally attached to certain parts of the employee experience kind of journey or life cycle, whether it's that they haven't got enough capability in a particular area, whether it's that they've got leaders who are failing to sort of galvanize their teams into high performing, sustainable units of human beings. Um, yeah, the, the employee experience has given us a lot of answers. So again, I've kind of codified it that if we have accountability, so we know what we're accountable for when we join an organization in the job that we do but we also know the accountability of the organization to us so what its kind of contractual obligations are beyond the exchange of revenue uh, into our salaries if we then are really clear about what what we need to behave like uh, how we need to um, approach um, innovation as an example uh, how we create exceptions if we're really clear in our span of influence control and, and domain of responsibility that links to that accountability and we know how that manifests itself in a sense of togetherness with the other people we work with. Those three things, I think, spark the entire employee experience to look at development, inclusion, influence, reward, the principles and values that shape and guide us. So I think if we get accountability, clarity, togetherness, they're almost the heart of an, uh, an employee experience that we can build, adapt and adjust as the company changes, as demands shift and change and as people mature and develop in their careers so i think we've got a lot to be thankful for that the customer experience gave us that sense and now we're starting to think about how can we apply this to employee experience to optimize for uh, fulfilling careers and jobs and roles for people uh, that will retain the top talent develop the right people and allow those people who don't fit anymore to understand and, and, and you know walk away and go and work for a competitor so i think there's definitely something in in the fact that we are amplifying what has been a quite nebulous concept uh, and we're applying it to our strategy actions products and services and intentions yeah i want to i want to change tack a wee bit with you now um so you wrote a, an absolutely beautiful article in, in April 2021 called Gratitude. Um, it really touched me and I, I, I reached out to you ahead of this interview um, to, to share some of my personal experiences over the course of the last year or so um because there are parts of it that really resonated with me i'm, I'm not as brave as you I, I don't i don't necessarily um share everything about my personal life but um you know uh, we've all gone through stuff over the course of uh, the last 18 months it, in in the article perry you, you open yourself mm. up and, and and you show your own vulnerabilities maybe if you don't mind perhaps you could tell our listeners mm. about some of the lessons that you share in that post and how as we all tried to overcome the stresses, the anxieties and the mm. despair of the past 16 to 18 months, employees mm. can find ways to demonstrate compassion and, and caring mm. for their colleagues. Mm. Um, yeah, thanks for all that. And I, I'm really glad that it came across in that right kind of way. Because so one of the things I guess I am aware of is that there's a concept called virtue signaling out there where people almost emit a sense of charitableness to the world but actually it's just to sort of say aren't I great because I'm charitable and I really didn't want this to come across as anything like that where and so in order to counter that I thought I've got to show the true like me here and talk about my wife's battle with multiple sclerosis
process and the loss of my mum and almost the collapse of my business and all that kind of stuff. And so I thought, well, you know, you can't really, I, I hope, accuse me of virtue signaling when these things have happened. And I'm still about to share a post that's all about being grateful for other people and things in your life. So, yeah, I guess I countered any accusations of that uh, by doing so. Uh, and so it wasn't just to sort of make sure my reputation was untarnished, but it almost felt as I started to construct that um, argument in my mind, I thought, but actually, this might help a lot of other people go, you know what, it's all right to talk about this stuff. It's not taboo. It's not to be hidden because there are times when you just don't feel OK and you just want to say there's a reason for it. Uh, and this is it. And so I, I guess I'm encouraging people to not necessarily be outwardly expressive about every single mood and emotion in your life. But there are times when things are really important that you want to let people know. So they go, well, I really felt that and I really sensed that. And I'm going to share something with you, too. I think that's how we create bonds that go beyond transactional working relationships, build trust. People understand and they can appreciate people, even if they've got different views on politics and sport and whatever. Um, but the other thing I found as I wrote it, it was almost like, God, I have so much to be grateful for. And, and I just wanted to name check so many people who've come across my life who I think unknowingly have made a massive difference to me in, in how I look at the world and what I now consider myself to be as an individual. So I just wanted to do that, almost like a Hall of Fame thing, a bit like um, older listeners will remember the um, This Is Your Life programme with Eamon Andrews, where there's this book of your life and all these guests turn up. It was almost like that. But at the same time, I also wanted to say to people, you know what, by being grateful, it can actually help you decompress, kind of calibrate your thinking, make sense of complexity, because ultimately there's nothing almost more pure than gratitude. It's just something you give as a sign of appreciation to other people. So, yeah, that was what was behind the post. And I think it can be quite a, a difficult thing to um, air a vulnerability. But if you do it with a sense of gratitude about the person you're sharing it with or other things in your life. I think it can balance it out so you don't feel like you're, you know, foisting your life's pressures on somebody else. You're being considerate. You're saying, yeah, this is going on for me, but I'm also grateful for that. And it feels like it's quite balanced for people to handle. So, yeah, I think that was at the heart of it. I found it heartfelt and authentic. And before today, you and I have never actually spoken before, but I, I kind of got a sense of who you were um, <laughs> but, but before this interview. And I, and I, and I, I hope you know, if, if that was part of the point of, of why you why you wrote it, then then, then you achieved yeah. that. I think um, so. Thanks. Hey, follow up question. As mm. so many folks return to the office in in many mm. countries, uh, in the UK, mm. in in the US, in Canada, and elsewhere, many of them are returning with with trepidation, with fear. Mm. Uh, how how can HR play a role in developing a more compassionate and inclusive office environment and and company culture? What what are those challenges, and um, what are the what are the processes that they can try and deploy? It's an interesting one here because uh, for a while, HR had a reputation of tea and sympathy, which is almost like, you know, if there's something going wrong, HR will listen. Here's the tissues and here's a cup of tea. Now, I think it's almost like a more sophisticated and humanly version of that, because I think when people are, are going back to the office environment with a degree of trepidation, they may not feel comfortable to talk to their line manager about that trepidation because the line manager may be the one who's exercising 
exercise and a degree of control to get them there. So they may find it a bit awkward to talk to colleagues who are all saying, oh, thank goodness we're back and have a different kind of euphoric response to it. So it's who do they talk to? Um, and I think this is where HR can just provide what I can only describe as some listening. It's not tea and sympathy. It's just if you want to talk about this stuff, decompress, make sense, share some um, uh, thoughts that might turn into ideas to help you cope with this. Um, uh, HR could do a lot of good by saying, you know, we, we, we can do that um, uh, and we can act in a way which is uh, noble, but also very, um, uh, I guess you'd say, sort of respectful of the need for confidentiality and so on. Um, I don't see any problem in that at all. I've spoken to a lot of people over the pandemic who were making sense of something that was really difficult for them. And so they reached out to me and I was like, okay, I can see I can help some people here. So I want to do it. But I, I desperately didn't want to solutionize. Do you know what I mean? I didn't want to turn it into a coaching session. So I just shut up and listened. And most people came back and went, oh, I feel ever so good now. Thanks. I'm like, I don't know what for, <laughs> because I didn't do anything. But it was that that made the difference. Uh, I didn't do anything because all I needed was to be there to listen. And I've got a really lovely colleague called Meg Pepin, who um, talks a lot about the Nancy Klein coaching technique of time to think. And, and she's taught me a lot about silence and about holding people's space with grace and comfort, but also strength and conviction. And I think if HR can say, that's what we're here to do right now, I think the rest of the world will go, blimey, that's good. They helped me deal with lockdown and remote working, and now they're helping me transition back. What would we do without HR? So I think that's a real strong point to be there in a humanly sense uh, and just listen. What happens, Perry, if an HR leader is faced with a situation where an employee says they just don't feel comfortable coming back to the office? Um, mm. Maybe, for, maybe for whatever reason, they've not had the vaccine. Perhaps they've had the vaccine, but they don't, they don't trust it. Mm. But maybe, maybe they've 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 got other things going on in their lives, which means that they that the the freedom of being able to work from home for the last sixteen ish months. Yeah um as mm. yeah, they've gotten used to that they don't they don't they don't want to mm. they, they don't want to change but, but most importantly i guess my question here is that around the safety factor mm. how do hr people combat that because mm. i don't know the answer to that and i, I, I keep asking people similar questions and, yeah. and I, i'm I'm, yeah. I'm confused yeah i th i think there's a chance for us to go um this is not like anything else we have experience of this is not just about coming back from a sick absence or annual leave or sabbatical or whatever this is totally unprecedented as the popular word of last year um, uh, occurrence and therefore we've got to take an approach which is um, uh, completely emergent and unique on it so I think we, we can sort of declare that. So I think, um, uh, you know, as people professionals, helping people get through um, the working situation in uh, a pre-pandemic uh, sense, we would issue policies and stuff. This is not a time for policies. I think this is a time for HR to go, here are a few principles that we would recommend we adopt as a collection of people who just happen to be called employees in an organisation about this completely unique and uncharted territory we find ourselves in and some of those principles are that people will have a degree of uncomfortable anxious um, responses they've never had before don't recognize in themselves and will feel at odds with other people not having the same reactions i think this is a time we can say this is not about homogenous sameness this is about 
absolutely allow indifference to become the way we um, move forward so that that difference is not challenged, not looked at scornfully, but appreciated that somebody has um, something going on in their mind and and in their spirit uh, that we cannot judge, we cannot replicate, we probably can't even understand it. So we have to just appreciate the difference. And I think if we start from that point, I think that opens up to people with caring responsibilities, people who have got um, I suppose a, a political um, uh, drive and activism, act, activism that we we saw in the base camp culture blow up. Um, I think it opens up to all sorts of things that we can just go. Look, we're all different. We've all got different thoughts, reactions, and so on. Let's not try and debate the issue about who's right or wrong. Let's just respect the difference. I think that's the way we we channel this. I hope you're right, Perry. Um, you did describe <laughs> yourself as a as an optimist at the top of this interview today. <laughs> yeah. um, the, the, the cynic in me worries that cash is king and uh, yeah. and people won't get listened to. But I do hope you're right. Um, hey, that's that's also another topic that we could just go off on and do a whole yeah. different interview on. But we are <laughs> running out of time. Before we wrap okay. things up for today, Perry, how, how can how can our listeners? learn more about you maybe how can they get a copy of your book and also how can they learn more about transformational hr limited Mm, for sure so the book is available at coganpage.com so that's nice and easy um i'm on linkedin and twitter so i'm not very difficult to find there's only one of me um and if they want to find out more about transformational hr i mean a google search will probably give you both video clips articles i've written uh, that sort of thing so uh, i think there's a growing um agenda and commentary about this now so there are other people out there who will also be sort of attuned to this uh, so it's not just the me thing which is great there's a whole little band of us taking our own particular stances through that um but the more people are connected to it can challenge share add to it uh, the, the better i welcome all of that connection bill so thank you for giving me the chance to do that awesome and that just leaves me to say for today perry timms thank you very much for being my guest on this episode of the hr chat show and thank you, Bill, for having me. I'm uh, I'm delighted to be here and hope what we kicked around is useful for people uh, and gives them a sense of where they might find their own little optimistic moment. And listeners, as always, until next time, happy working. Thank you for listening to the HR Chat Podcast, brought to you by the HR Gazette. 